by grace and all my heart is yours. All fear removed, I breathe you in, I lean into your Oh, I'm so excited. Good afternoon, everyone. We are jumping into an exciting new series today about grace. I have been waiting for today. What does grace look like? How do we give and receive grace? What are some of the challenges with being someone who struggles with sin and addiction while trying to love and serve the Lord? And what are the challenges we face as believers who want to understand and help, but do not know where to begin? What does forgiveness really look like? These are just a few of the questions we're going to explore over the next eight weeks. Let me tell you a little bit about how this series developed. Several weeks ago, someone I know passed away from a drug overdose. This was someone who served the Lord diligently, had goals and dreams of ministering in a more effective way, and somebody who nobody would have guessed was hiding something so profound. In the midst of questions, as I'm sure you can imagine, I heard her pastor speak words of truth, that this person loved and served the Lord, and that this person struggled with an addiction. And she was both at the same time. I was blown away by this and realized that I was so surprised to hear that from a pastor. You see, my heart was aching for this woman who passed away. My experiences might have been somewhat different in nature in detail, but my story was so similar. Trauma, pain, addiction, a life of sin and secrets. And somewhere beneath the scars, was a heart for the Lord, a budding relationship with the Heavenly Father, a desire to do the right thing, and a willingness to serve the Lord in any way he asked. Romans seven nineteen says, I don't do the good I want to do. Instead, I do the evil that I don't want to do. This has been a challenge throughout my life, battling between the desire to do right and the desires of the flesh. Unfortunately, early in my life, my relationship with God became jagged, and my prayers sounded like an emergency hotline. I couldn't get close without running away because I felt ashamed. One Sunday morning several years ago, when that shame was reinforced, I decided never to go back to church again. Time and experience and the hand of God shifted my thinking and my focus, And I'm grateful for my church and its leadership. But I have heard so many stories of people who experienced similar things than I did and have not returned to church since. Some have decided that it is not only church that isn't for them anymore, but the people who attend church. And in some cases, they decided that God is no longer for them. This is the first episode, and it focuses on shame and how we speak of addiction and sin from the pulpit. As people who minister to others, we have an opportunity and a responsibility to speak truth and love and to guide others to the throne of grace. 
As we explore some of the pieces here, know that the message encompasses every part of who I am and who I have been. I have struggled with addiction. I have lived a life of sin and separateness. I have carried shame and can still find myself battling this now. I am freed and forgiven and loved beyond comprehension. I am far from perfect. I seek to grow in the Lord and to see others find the joy, peace, and hope that is freely offered. So let's begin. One of the primary reasons for anxiety in those who are struggling with addiction is being found out. We don't want exposure because we fear rejection, judgment, accusations, and abandonment. Shame causes us to hide. We hide away from people. Sometimes we hide away from responsibilities. We hide behind humor, bravado, timidity, and facades. So imagine this, a man feels this anxiety and knows his past or his present sins and struggles could prevent him from being accepted into the church crowd. He takes a chance, deciding that he might be willing to unveil a smidgen of his authentic self in the hopes that he can find what he so desperately needs. He walks in late missing the sometimes half-hearted welcome hugs and expected handshakes. Just in time to hear the music playing, which sounds so nice and allows him to relax a little. Then the sermon begins, and he recognizes a similarity between the one delivering the message and himself. He sees humor and bravado, and he thinks it can't possibly be a facade because this is someone who stands behind the pulpit and preaches the word of God. But the words being spoken are stabbing him. They feel like icicles falling from the rooftop on a mild winter day. It sounds to this man as if the minister had been following him around for decades, taking notes on all of his shortcomings. He was certainly talking about him in a room with so many put-together people, and the feeling was of condemnation. What this man doesn't know is that the one who's delivering the message of shame fights their own battles daily. In fact, nobody in that room knows this. The first thing we need to think about when we are preparing to speak of addiction and sin is this. Does our own shame cause us to speak about these things differently? Are we trying to hide our own struggles or appear to be close to perfect because we fear being found out or we fear knowing these things about ourselves? In speaking from behind the pulpit, we need to remain humble. This is not usually a space to share our story in detail and turn the entire focus on our role as villain, hero, or victim. We can do this sometimes in a veil to give God the glory for being able to overcome what we have, but we need to be careful not to become the center of the message. Humility doesn't mean unloading everything we've carried. We want to speak in a way that allows others to see that we are imperfect and human, and equal at the foot of the cross. We want to speak honestly and gently. 
The story of the woman at the well is one of my favorites for so many reasons. Let's dive into this a moment in John 4, starting in verse 7. When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? His disciples had gone into the town to buy food. And the Samaritan woman said to him, You are a Jew, and I am a Samaritan woman. How can you ask me for a drink? Jews didn't associate with Samaritans at that point. And during this time, Jesus explains that he's the living water. And he's providing her with this opportunity to know that he is the Messiah of which she was waiting for. In verse 16, Jesus continues, Go, call your husband and come back. I have no husband, she replied. Jesus said to her, You are right when you say that you have no husband. The fact is, you have had five husbands, and the man you have now is not your husband. What you have said is quite true. The woman recognizes Jesus as a prophet. And then we hear these life-changing words. In verse 21, Woman, Jesus replied, Believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. We move ahead to verse 23. A time is coming when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshiper the Father seeks. In verse 25, the woman says, I know that Messiah called Christ is coming. When he comes, he will explain everything to us. And Jesus declared, I, the one speaking to you, I am he. Jesus explains, I am the one that you have been waiting for. And this woman believes him. And she goes to tell others about what she's found. Can you imagine this modern day? Here is a woman searching for love in all the wrong places. Who knows what she might have gone through in her life or why she so desperately feels that a man will fill this emptiness. But she is searching and hoping. Then enters Jesus. He knows her, but he speaks to her kindly with honor and gentleness, but with genuine truth. He doesn't withhold the things that he knows, but he doesn't shame her for her actions. He gives her a chance to understand and to know that there's something better and something different. That Jesus, he is the one she's been waiting for. Jesus is the answer, the living water, the one thing that will give her what she so desperately needs and has been searching for. It wasn't just his words. It was his presence. I can almost picture his body posture and hear his tone of voice. All together, it pronounced the message of, I see you, I know you, and I love you. When we speak a a message on addiction and struggle and sin, are we presenting the same message? Does our message, do our words come across to the people listening as I see you out there? Some of you hide it well, and some of you, it is written on your face, but I know you carry brokenness and you are not alone. We are all broken and Jesus is the answer for all of us. 
the only way, the only one that can fill that space. That very space that drugs and food and sex and material things and alcohol are pretending to fill. I see you. I know you. I love you. And more importantly, God loves you. Is this the message that we are sending to others? Lastly, we must speak from a genuine place. What is our motive for the message? Do we want to see restoration? If the desire is not there, if we don't care about or don't believe in the restoration of completely broken people, if we believe it's possible people have gone too far for a return, then we probably should be preparing messages on a different topic. Sometimes we need to know that this topic is not one God is calling us to deliver on. Are we trying to use scripture to make someone feel bad? Are we trying to manipulate the course of the congregation or a program by speaking on a topic that presents itself in media and plagues the modern family? Are we trying to impress Speaking with humility, honesty, and out of a genuine desire to see people restored. This is what we need to try to do. This is where we need to extend our focus. Then ask yourself, is this a safe space for the sinner to worship? How can someone who already carries shame deeply feel safe in a church where the words they hear from the person behind the pulpit mimics the same words in their head. When the negativity rolling in the minds, the false beliefs of who they are, of who the enemy has created an idea of who they are, if that is reinforced every Sunday morning, how do we expect change? Shame is a key part in the cycle of addiction. It both stems from the addictive behavior or substance, and it serves as a trigger to continue the addictive high. The world serves messages of shame in high amounts. The media exploits pain. Secular recovery groups and formats have the ability to remove the power of the Holy Spirit and belief that the true freedom can be found and replaces it with regimented programs and applause for a job well done. The church has the ability to contribute to these messages, but we also have the opportunity to do things differently. We have the ability to preach words of truth life, love, and grace. We can say, you are seen, you are known, you are loved. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, there is nothing more beautiful than the extravagant grace you give. But Lord, let us extend your grace and love through the words we speak. Examine our hearts and show us the areas that need work. Allow us to be authentic and genuine. Hide us behind your cross every moment we speak your word. In Jesus' name, amen.
Join me next week as we explore the topic of thorns when God does not remove our deepest battles. Thank you for joining me. God bless everyone.